First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about Quidditch, privilege, and color. Welcome everyone to episode 31 of First Years. The wait is over. We finally get to experience the Quidditch World Cup. Although we start out with some more chat about muggle repelling charms and learning more about how those work. But the Quidditch World Cup is fun because we get to see part of the wizarding world outside of Hogwarts and see what it's like to be a wizard once you graduate school or just outside of a school setting. And there are a lot of similarities here with the Quidditch World Cup and sporting events that us muggles go to, especially with all of the advertising and the merch that you can buy. One of the really cool things that Harry buys are omnioculars, (laughs) which are binoculars that have rewind, fast forward, and they can recognize strategy and specific moves, which is super cool. So Harry and co are sitting up in the top box with the ministry officials and with the Malfoys. We get to meet Draco's mother, but they all are still not nice, with Lucius Malfoy making a comment that even the borough couldn't be worth as much as the tickets for these seats are, which is really obnoxious. And so Mr. Weasley got these great seats because of doing a favor for someone at the ministry. While Lucius Malfoy is a guest of the minister because he just made a generous donation to St. Mungo's The Wizard Hospital. And I know that we know that the Malfoys are rich, but we haven't found out how or why exactly We're just assuming that they're old money and it just, it is what it is. But they are such an example of how money talks and can get you places. And it makes me wonder that Lucius Malfoy may not be donating that money out of the goodness of his heart and instead more because of the perks that it gets him. We also meet another house elf here, Winky, who is the house elf of Mr. Crouch. We get insight into her life and what it's like to be a quote-unquote proper house elf, and we get an update on Dobby, who isn't a good example of a proper house elf because he's trying to get jobs that will actually pay him. What a concept. And I was wondering while I was reading this about how Winky and Dobby are in contact, because I suppose When he worked for the Malfoys, it would make sense for him to cross paths with Winky because I'm sure if the Malfoys are this close to the minister, it would make sense for them to be just as close to Mr. Crouch. But Dobby hasn't worked with them since book two. So are there like meetups of house elves when they aren't working? Like how does she know what he's up to? 
I really hope there's meetups. That's just such a fun concept to me of like a place where house elves go when they're not on duty and they like check up on each other and gossip. I like that thought. Before the game starts, the two teams, Ireland and Bulgaria, get to show off their mascots. Ireland has leprechauns and Bulgaria brings Vila. So the Vila start and there's an immediate effect on both Harry and Ron, which is the point. There actually wasn't a lot of information on Vila when I was researching, but I was able to find that Vila, which also seems to be spelled V-I-L-A or W-I-L-A, are a fairy in Slavic mythology, and they are similar to a nymph. And there are three kinds, land and forest ones, water ones, and air ones. They can appear as different animals or as a whirlwind. They have power and they're able to heal. They can also help handsome men with fighting their enemies. They confuse men's spirits. They are also associated with switching babies out for changelings, which is a common fairy trait that I know we've spoken about before. Sometimes they're considered the souls of girls that have died and then they lure men into a circle dance that they can't escape from, which I'm sure is the quality that many of you are most familiar with. They're usually blonde and gorgeous, and sometimes they can be friendly unless you insult them. They are able to charm men with their looks and their voices, which we absolutely see in this uh, chapter. In Serbia, they were considered girls that were cursed by God, while in Bulgaria, and this is interesting, they were girls that died before they were baptized. I found that that was a very interesting detail that Bulgaria has specifically. What we see here is that the Vila mascots are beautiful and blonde and they start dancing and Harry's thoughts just scatter. <laughs> He's ready to jump from the top box onto the pitch in order to impress these women and Ron has a similar reaction, and Hermione rolls their eyes at them. And one of the questions that I was curious about was whether sexuality comes into play here, because Hermione rolls her eyes in a way that's just like, ugh, boys, I can't believe you were affected by that. But I feel like it can't just be men they affect. I feel like women who are into women, I would assume would also be affected in the same way. Because I think it would be really fucked up for, like, gay men to be attracted to the Vila if Hermione, like, isn't. Because the reason that Hermione isn't is because Hermione's straight. Right? So I'm just curious as to what that situation would be like. Because we're only exposed so far in this book to straight characters. But anyway... These Vila cause some problems during the game. They distract the ref, and then they start turning into birds and are capable of throwing fire. So I'm not entirely sure which myth they're following exactly in this book, but I think we can agree that we probably just don't want to mess with them. <laughs> Meanwhile, the leprechauns we see in the Quidditch Cup are able to fly, they shower the crowd with gold, and they tease their opponents by forming shapes and words in the air. 
I was able to find more info on leprechauns while researching. They are figures of Irish folklore, and they're usually associated with guarding treasure. They usually have a pot of gold that they hide at the end of a rainbow. I'm sure you've all heard that. But they also can be mischievous, and it's hard to trap them. And even if a human were to trap them, the human couldn't look away from them or else they wouldn't get the location of the treasure. These guys were part of oral tradition before written history, and they date back to appearing in literature in the 8th century of the Common Era. We consider them today as cheery and wearing green and wearing a top hat, but originally they were considered to wear red and were actually more stern and had tempers. In general, they were considered to be part of the fairy family of creatures, so that's two mythological creatures that fall into the fairy category for us today. Um, They're also only two to three feet tall. And according to legend, there are no female leprechauns. There's also some debate over the inspiration behind them. They've been considered to be spirits that haunt cellars and carry a purse of coins around with them. Another source of inspiration is a text from the 12th century where they are depicted as monsters, and another are the water sprites in Celtic mythology. And this is really interesting. So some think that they're derived from the Irish Celtic god Lu, who is a god of sun and light and who became a warrior and a ruler of ancient Ireland. However, Christianity came through and took over all of these older religions, so they transformed him into a Lu that was stooped and who now lived underground with the rest of the gods who had been forgotten thanks to new religions coming in. I just thought that was a super interesting depiction of like an original god getting smaller and smaller because these new religions are being are, are taking over everything. So that's what starts the game. And then we have the actual game. And Harry is completely awestruck by the professional level of these Quidditch teams. And so I wonder, is there a bad seat to see Quidditch? Like with some sports, you want to sit in the corner. Or, for example, with baseball, you want to sit behind home plate because it gives you a better view and you can see everything. Does that exist in Quidditch? Or not because omnioculars exist? Plus, there's nothing blocking your view because everything is up in the air, right? So you don't have scoreboards right in the middle screwing everything up. (laughs) I also wanted to chat about the actual gameplay of Quidditch. Like, how do you steal the Quaffle? Like, besides interference with the pass, like, because I would assume that they're all moving too fast for you to, like, grab it out of their hands. Also, is that even legal to grab it out of their hands? We see a lot of penalty calls in this game, and it seems that penalty shots are the only consequence for breaking rules and committing a foul. But I feel like it would be more interesting to have, like, a penalty box like you see in hockey where you're down a player if something like that happens. Just think of how that would affect the game. The stakes would be a lot higher. Plus, we see the Ronsky feint, which Crum uses against the Irish seeker, and he crashes into the ground. But why would that even be legal? 
The omnioculars literally say dangerous seeker diversion. If you're doing that willingly to hurt the other seeker, shouldn't that be illegal? But it also seems like anything goes. <laughs> like, because even in hockey, if you draw blood, it's immediately upgraded from a two minute penalty to a double minor, which is four minutes. Literally nothing happens as Crumb is completely bleeding. The whistle isn't even blown, which is because he's distracted by the chaos, but then why is there only one ref? I feel like you need more than one ref for Quidditch. And like, what are the exact rules for the bludgers and the beaters? Because that's what causes Crumb's injury in the first place. Are there targets that are off limits? Because it's implied that like, there would be a penalty called for Crumb getting slammed in the face, <laughs> but the ref was distracted. But like, what, is, is the face the only area that's off limits? Or can you hit everything else? Is there, are there, what are the rules? <laughs> in the end, none of it ends up really mattering because Crumb gets the snitch and the game is over. And the Weasley twins win their bet that Ireland wins, but Crumb gets the snitch. So, everyone's celebrating, but the night takes a turn for the worst because Death Eaters show up and wreak havoc. We learn in this chapter that the Death Eaters are the ones who follow Voldemort, and they're having a bunch of fun in their uniforms, scaring people and harassing the muggles that work at the campground. But they disperse as soon as they see the dark mark appear in the sky. So from our main character's perspective, we hear a man say the spell and this emerald green skull with a snake coming out of its mouth appears in the sky and it frightens both the former Death Eaters and the regular wizards who remember what it was like when Voldemort was at large. Wizards are forced to remember how things were 13 years before, before Harry defeated Voldemort as a baby. One of the things that stood out to me was that we see a flash of green light before we even see the crowds of wizards. And we know what that flash is associated with because Harry has a very vague memory of a flash of green light as a kid, and it's associated with his parents' death. I think that paired with wizards having to relive the trauma of Voldemort's... It, is reign the correct term here? I'm not sure, but I'm going to use it. Voldemort's reign shows us some of the theme of this chapter, which I think is vulnerability. Because think about it, people were celebrating in chapter one of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. They haven't had to deal with any threat for 13 years, and now it's come back and smacked them in the face. Not just that there are still supporters hanging around, but also that someone conjured the dark mark, which I'm sure is traumatic to many wizards who had firsthand experiences with it. Just like Mr. Weasley says, just imagine coming home and finding that above your house and knowing what you would find inside. But also, Harry doesn't have his wand with him. That's like super important for a wizard. And even though Harry doesn't know a lot of spells, having it is more comforting because he might be able to do something in a situation like this rather than just do nothing and be defenseless. So we see vulnerability and we see fear. 
fear from the wizards who are running away and are the targets of this group. Also fear from Winky as she gets caught with Harry's wand and has to face the consequences of disobeying her master's orders. Our group is also targeted by stupefy spells when they're caught at the scene of the crime, and they're also interrogated, which I have so many questions about because the Ministry's ability to solve crimes, like Diggory's line of questioning is so bizarre and his ability to jump to conclusions is frightening and irresponsible in my opinion. Kids and house elves are the last ones to be able to conjure a dark mark. And I think the spell they used to figure out what the last spell a wand used is flawed because just like with what exactly happens in this scene, someone could easily use somebody else's wand and then toss it away for somebody else to find. They can't connect the person who has the wand with the actual spell it cast. Not only that, but we're seeing more of the system of wizarding society and the privilege that goes along with it. We've already learned about house elves from book two, but we gain another perspective in this book with Winky and Hermione is really starting to see the injustice of it all. Ron, however, as a wizard, doesn't see what she's worried about because house elves are just part of wizarding life and they're happy and it's fine. But we even see Winky being told to do things that she doesn't want to do, even if it's not as violent or cruel as what Dobby was enduring. And another thought occurred to me here, and it's color in this chapter, more specifically green versus red. That is something we see in many genres. Star Wars, I'm looking at you. But it's interesting because green is associated with Voldemort because of the flash of green light and the dark mark, also with Slytherin's color. And red is associated with the good guys. That's the color of the stupefy spell. It's also Gryffindor's color. Also the two teams that played in the Quidditch World Cup. They're red and green. But red and green are also complementary colors. They're across from each other on the color wheel. And so they cancel each other out, but they also go together when you put them side by side. So what do we make of that? Is it that good and evil have to coexist? That you can't really have one without the other? Because the Quidditch match wasn't a straight win for either team. One caught the snitch, but the other scored more goals. What do you think? What's more important? And where are you in the debate on house elves? Let us know at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at firstyearspod on Twitter or Instagram. The house cup tournament is still going strong, so remember there are plenty of opportunities to win house points with our Mindful Magic Mondays, our trivia on Wednesday, also rating and reviewing this podcast and leaving your name at Hogwarts House to earn double house points as well as a shout out on here. For next episode, you need to read chapters 10 and 11, and I will see you guys next time.
this production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H and Dittmeyer is spelled D-I-T-T-M-E-I-E-R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have and we are committed to continue